Welcome to Making Connections News. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. On this, the Christmas season edition, we're looking at economic challenges facing our cities and counties in the region, but mostly we're celebrating as we explore the positive impact the recently passed Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act is going to have on our area. We'll also report on Build Back Better, a bill that if passed by Congress would invest in our human infrastructure. That is, children, students, families, healthcare, community well-being, and more. We will hear from Marley Green from Apple Shop, Dustin Pugel, who is Senior Policy Analyst with the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, and Rebecca Shelton, Research Director at Appalachian Citizens Law Center. I spoke with Marley Green in July 2021 about his experiences working in the region. At that time, Congress was debating various investment bills that might assist the region, but nothing had become law. So my name's Marley Green. Um, I work for Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky, but I live in the town of Pound, Virginia in Wise County. I lived in Wise County off and on since 2009. kind of originally moved to the area uh, for an internship and just kind of really fell in love with Southwest Virginia and Eastern Kentucky, um, kind of Central Appalachia as a whole. Um, but yeah, I don't know, I, um, I work as a community development worker. So I do some fundraising and kind of grant writing and development. And then I also work a lot with um, community organizations in both Southwest Virginia, and Eastern Kentucky around um, projects that kind of improve the quality of life uh, for for people in the area. So it's trails and it's art and it's um, kind of cultural festivals. Um, what I've seen shift a little bit in, in the region is is a focus on just economic development, which sometimes has meant, you know, just build a bigger road and more businesses will come or just build another um, industrial park, you know, and then we can put big businesses there. And I think what we're finding is that um, it's not just about uh, providing those sorts of you know, roads or basic infrastructure for big businesses. It's that you know, workers and businesses and business owners, they want to, they w- they want, to want to live there, right? Or like um, we can create businesses when we have a community that people want to live in, right? We can create new economic opportunities when people want to live in a place because it has good trails and it has um, you know, uh, arts and culture and music and um, uh, good drinking water. You know, I think some of these basic, well, there's these basic <laughs> infrastructure of water and sewer that I think we need to, to focus on. And then I think we, we need to focus on our seeing success around when we have a community that has a walking trail and art and music um, that people want to be there. People want to move there. Uh, and will create opportunities that allow them to live there. Um, there's also something about arts and culture that help people come together and figure out new ways forward. Um, uh, there's something about you know going to a concert with somebody, uh, meeting somebody at a concert that maybe you've lived in the same town together forever but never talked, but now you're you know that you have this shared love of that band or that music, and then you can start talking about other things. And I think I've seen that personally a number of times where people have known each other for years but never worked together and now they're working on you know putting on music events and, and festivals um, and on the side they're joining the economic development authority committee you know and figuring out how they can work together to bring in a new business um, so you know i think there's something about supporting arts and culture that has these ripple effects um, that haven't often been i think valued by economic development um, 
but I think it, it's real. What Marley didn't say at the time of this interview was that he was a member of the Pound Virginia City Council and so had come to know well the challenges facing many coalfield towns. The town of Pound and Wise County have lost you know, somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of the population. And so you know, that represents um, uh, taxpayers, that represents uh, sales tax, employee tax. So these are all taxes that the town is lost out on. And so there's just fewer resources just from population loss. Um, in addition to that, we've seen you know, the coal severance tax. So this was a, a big portion of um, the town's budget for many years, I think, in 2009, so that was 10 years ago, already after years of decline, uh, that number was $200,000 a year for the town's budget. Now that number is $25,000 every year. Uh, and we expect that to continue to de de decline. So you know, that's money that went to support um, you know, infrastructure, um, town staff, um, you know, things like street repair and sidewalk repair. Uh, and so that's money that's just not available anymore. And so um, you know, between loss of population and businesses related to the decline in the coal industry um, to yeah, loss of severance taxes from, from the coal industry that was sort of direct transfer to towns, um, the town's budget is much smaller than it used to be. And at the same time, you know, the cost of maintaining our water and sewer infrastructure has gone up, right? So these are old kind of water systems um, that have um, have increasing costs as they get older. And so it's, it's, it's uh, intersecting you know, issues here that makes it really hard for small towns like Pound in the coal fields to kind of dig out of, of this hole and, and chart a path forward. Um, we're less able to provide services. There are fewer services that we're able to provide as the town. And so more people leave, you know, and fewer people want to move back or you know, start a business in town. And so it's just this, um, this, this really tough spiral for, for towns and, and counties too. You know, so Wise County is facing similar um, challenges, uh, Letcher County here in Kentucky. And I think one thing that happens when you have towns with, with such fewer resources and there's, a lot, there's conflict about what we should do to move forward. And sometimes that conflict gets really loud and really you know, um, hurtful. And so I think there's also this, this challenge of just getting people together um, to think about how to move forward together, um, be, that becomes harder. Um, just getting people to talk to each other, because yeah, when resources are scarce, um, people are are you know fighting for kind of the scraps and and fighting for the decisions about what should happen. So definitely a lot of challenges around that at the local level, and then you know there's similar challenges at the at the county and and regional level. This broader economic challenge that the region as a whole faces is. You know, it's not just one town or one county that's losing population and losing businesses, it's this entire region. And so there's not, you know, um, kind of have to leave the area to find new opportunities. And so young people especially are leaving uh, to find, you know, jobs and opportunities. And, um, you know, those are our most creative, innovative, hardworking or, or passionate people. Um, and so, you know, it just feels like that's a big challenge I see um, everywhere. I don't think it can be stressed enough in how dire the situation is. You could draw the line at 50 years ago when the decline began or 10 years ago when it really sped up. Wherever you draw the line, there's been this drastic decline in the tax base of towns and counties uh, across the region. And if there isn't support um, from state and federal and, and other agencies, I think there are going to be a lot of people 
without clean drinking water in this region. I think we're seeing it in some places that have gotten really high profile, like Martin County, Kentucky. If we don't do something as a, as a country and as a society to support these systems, these, these infrastructure, we're gonna have a lot of people without clean drinking water um, right here in the heart of our country. And I think, um, I, I don't think that's right <laughs> as an American that, that anybody shouldn't have access to clean drinking water. Um, and I think the, the problem is just getting more and more, just harder and harder. The longer we wait, the harder it is to dig out of this. Despite the dire situation many towns and counties are facing, Marley sees long-term economic opportunities in the region with the right kind of investment. I think there's this incredible opportunity for, um, yeah, for a new way of making a living for thousands of people in in the region. Um, you know, growing food and forests on on surface mines, um, and I think any effort that can help move in that direction. Um, well, just it's an investment in our future. You know, I think it's a way to immediately create jobs and work for people, but it's it's an investment that will pay off, you know, dividends and dividends for for decades to come if we can um, create forests, especially productive forests that have, um, you know, products uh, that can be um, uh, kind of harvested over years. And I think especially thinking about the way that coal and gas and oil have been you know, really one-time kind of things is you take a piece of coal and it's gone. Um, but with trees and non-timber forest products and silviculture and these kinds of things that, these kinds of industries that can grow on surface mines, um, they're sustainable. We can you know, harvest one year and then the next year there's a different crop. Or you know, in 10 years, that same crop of, you know, of trees, of um, you know, switchgrass for fuel. I mean, there's all these opportunities for sustainable um, production on these these sites that aren't a one-time thing. They're they're um, yeah, they're continuous. They're they're perennial. They're re regrowing. Um, I just think the to me, it's yeah, it's just a huge opportunity that. But we need investment, and it's a you know, it's a it's an investment that will take years to um, to really get a return on. Uh, and so I think there's. Mark, I think there are market forces, there are, there are you know, um, investors that would be interested in these kinds of investments. But when you look at maybe it's going to take 5, 10, 15, or even 30 years to you know, get a return on this, I think a lot of investors are saying, you know, um, maybe step back from it. But I think this is a place where the federal and state governments can kind of lead the way and say, this is, a, this is a good investment. It will take time, but it's worth it. Um, and I think it's the kind of investment that would benefit small towns and counties and the region as a whole. And I think it's, it should be important, you know, I think there is this debt um, that the country owes to the work that's been done, to the resources that have come out of, out of Appalachia. But I think there, I don't necessarily want to focus on the debt because there's also right now, um, you know, the, the lower economic status of Appalachia is a burden to uh, taxpayers today. I think when people are in poverty, it costs towns, it costs counties, it costs states money to help them, right, to, to provide food stamps, to provide um, welfare, to provide access to uh, childcare and education. Um, and, you know, that, that costs society funds. And if we can help people, help the region create new opportunities, um, that will benefit everybody. <laughs> if if Appalachia is less poor across, uh, um, you know, across the board, 
um, everybody benefits. <laughs> that was Marley Green, who works on community development projects at Apple Shop. On November 15th, President Joe Biden signed into law the $1.2 trillion Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. The bill had bipartisan support with a wide range of economists and business groups agreeing that it is the most important step in a generation toward upgrading critical infrastructure like roads, bridges, broadband, water systems, the power grid, and land restoration. The Kentucky Center for Economic Policy researches and reports on the fiscal and economic impact of various state and federal policies. I asked senior policy analyst Dustin Pugel how Kentucky might benefit from the money the Infrastructure Act will provide. Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, anyone who has driven <laughs> throughout the Commonwealth will know that uh, we have a lot of roads um, and a lot of those roads are in disrepair. Um, we actually, even though, you know, our population is pretty much dead middle for states in the country, we have the seventh largest bridge network. We have the eighth largest pavement network in the country, um, but thousands of miles of roads and hundreds of bridges have all been found um, to need really serious repair. And I know one of the, the big ones that has been in the news lately is the Brent Spence Bridge, uh, which carries I-75 into Ohio um, and brings a lot of you know, economic activity into and, and out of the state. And um, if we don't get a handle on those things, it's gonna make uh, you know, continuing to build and, and export products, but also just move around, moving around the state more difficult. Um, but in addition to that, you know, there are uh, clearly issues with uh, water quality in the state. Um, I know Martin County's been in the, the news a lot around that. Um, there is a huge lack of internet access throughout the state, especially fast, high-speed internet. Um, you know, there, is, there are all kinds of infrastructure needs that, that we have as a state. And so this plan really boosts funding for those kinds of projects, which uh, is, is typically the bottleneck for making sure that we have uh, you know, good high quality infrastructure. It, it provides extra money for broadband. It provides money for clean water. It adds um, both a 33% boost to our, our funding for roads and bridges, but also opens up competitive bidding grants uh, for larger projects like, like the Brent Spence Bridge. So there are uh, a lot of opportunities as well as a lot of just, uh, you know, straight funding for us to be able to bring our, our roads, our bridges, our water, our, um, our broadband up to where it needs to be, you know, 20 years into the 21st century. And, and how do you think that, um, you know, we'll see that in Eastern Kentucky? I think it's sometimes really hard. These big pieces of legislation get passed up in Washington. And, you know, I, I think folks here in Eastern Kentucky are probably saying, well, okay, you know, our dollar bill is going to fall out of the sky or, or how might it really make a difference in our communities? Well, I, you know, I think for one, um, one of the uh, benefits related to broadband in particular is a direct subsidy for folks who need it. Um, it's for folks who are at or below 200% of the federal poverty line, which is about a third of Kentucky households. Um, so folks could see uh, soon the potential for a $30 a month benefit to help offset those costs. 
Um, folks are likely to see more road crews out uh, working on um, highways, including a lot of the feeder roads in, in the Appalachian region of the state, because um, there's a there's something called the Appalachian Regional um, Highway System that uh, is sort of underway, and um, there's money specifically to help get that up to speed. Um, and you know, I think we'll also ideally see um, some improvements in our ability to move into the next sort of phase of our uh, ground transportation. So uh, I know folks have heard a lot about the Ford plant and how there's a, a new battery manufacturing facility that's gonna come into the state. Um, so I think that's uh, really telling for where the automotive industry is going in general with electronic vehicles. And so there's a lot of money in the Build Back Better plan for the installation of electronic vehicle charging stations. So in addition to seeing, you know, going to your, your gas station and seeing the gas pumps, we'll start seeing more charging stations throughout the state. So um, I think there's going to be a lot of really, uh, you know, noticeable differences uh, through this legislation, and, and we're going to see a lot of benefit from it. Yeah, I don't know if there is an electric charging station in eastern Kentucky. That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> there may be, but I don't know. And certainly, um, you know, if funds can come in for our water problems, I know that in Letcher County, although we've, you know, we've really done a good job of, um, with our Letcher County water and sewer district of bringing water, there's still many households that don't have water. And of course, like you said, Martin County is a problem that is just typical of so many counties, I think. Yeah, I, you know, another way that I think Eastern Kentucky in particular will see a lot of benefit from this is that there's uh, almost one and a half billion dollars in competitive grants for cleaning up uh, certain environmental sites, including abandoned oil and gas wells, uh, brownfield sites, uh, which are, you know, like, previously uh, used as like gas stations and things like that, areas where there, there needs to be some environmental cleanup. Um, but also there's a lot of money, uh, $11.2 billion for abandoned mine reclamation in Kentucky. Uh, Kentucky has the third largest uh, ground space of unreclaimed mine sites. I think it's something like 34,000 acres. Um, and so I think what we'll also see, particularly in the Eastern part of the state is a lot of work, uh, you know, cleaning up abandoned uh, wells, making sure that uh, environmental hazard sites are, are cleaned up and then bringing um, some of our, our stripped mountains uh, hopefully back to a state of beauty and you know, uh, reforestation. So I think those are some other ways that I think Eastern Kentucky in particular will see this benefit. Are there any provisions in the bill that um, local people be hired or that people be hired at certain you know wage standards anything like that well there's going to be a lot of um additional hiring especially for road crews and and like you know fixing abandoned um, gas wells and mines and, and installing ev stations um and there those are going to have to uh, meet certain federal standards because those will largely be state and federal contracts which tend to make sure that there are uh, you know, good wages, there's good job opportunity. And because these jobs are local, they're going to have to hire a lot of local folks. That, that would be very welcome news in Eastern Kentucky. Absolutely. 
As Dustin mentioned, the large increase in funding to clean up abandoned mine lands could benefit eastern Kentucky and other Appalachian states in a big way. Rebecca Shelton is the research director at the Appalachian Citizens Law Center, which has been a part of a coalition of organizations from all over the country that has been pressing Congress to continue the abandoned mine land fund and to put more of its money to work in the coal fields. I asked Rebecca about this part of the bill. The abandoned mine land funding in the bill is and a historic amount of investment in abandoned mine land cleanup. Um, and for Kentucky, I think it's going to be a transformative amount of investment. So the bill itself grants 11, approximately $11.3 billion for abandoned mine land cleanup, as well as extends the abandoned mine land fee um, that has been the only source of funding for the entirety of the program um, that, that comes from the severance fee on coal extraction uh, for 13 years. That's extended out for 13 years. So we have both this new pool of money, which is the $11.3 billion for Ben and Mine Land Cleanup, as well as a continuation of what was once the only funding source. And so in Kentucky, the reason that that is very impactful is because Kentucky has over 900 million in documented existing abandoned mine land liability. And that's only what's documented. And last year, for example, we received approximately only around $9 million to address that liability, which is easy math to do. It's really a drop in the bucket. Um, and so with such a little funding, Kentucky has really only been able to address the really high priority emergency type situations and sites where um, you know, where, where we see landslides coming from these abandoned mine lands and just really kind of in triage mode, I think, with the amount of funding they've had. And so this new infrastructure bill will make it so that Kentucky actually receives, a, based on our projections, there's still some kind of interpretation of the, of the Infrastructure Act that needs to be done to know exactly how much funding Kentucky will get. But we expect that it's going to hover around $75 million annually. So that's a huge, a huge increase. And there are both abandoned mine lands in the eastern part of the state as well in the western part of the state. Um, but there are um, more, more abandoned mine lands in the eastern, eastern part of Kentucky. Um, so it's, it's, it's exciting to have that much funding, um, you know, that, that will go to really allow, I think, the agency to be able to address sites preventatively and, and address some really high dollar sites, you know, really expensive sites that they haven't been able to clean up. And, and I, you know, just give an opportunity to look for sites, right? You know, over the last few years, there hasn't even been enough money to clean up what they know exists. And so with this influx of funding, uh, there's an opportunity to to do an even um, you know, more extensive job looking to where we need to invest in order to prevent um, things like landslides and subsidence and things that affects people's property and, and homes um, from happening due to, these, due to these legacy mine sites. So how soon do you think that this money will start to roll in? Yeah, that's a question a lot of us are asking. Um, in the in the bill language, it is said for fiscal year 2022. 
So at some point next year, I think we can expect to see the money come through. Um, it may not be, it's not gonna be January, I suspect, but probably a little bit later in the year. Um, so it, it maybe in the spring, optimistically, I think there's still, there's still a lot to be uh, for the agency to, to work out in terms of developing some guidance for this pool of funding um, around implementation. Um, there's always that kind of, you know, step that happens from a legis legislation is passed and then there's some interpretation that has to happen for new, for new programs and then uh, actually getting it to, into the hands of folks in Kentucky. And then Kentucky will also have to um, ramp up and, and start implementing the funds on the ground. But I think Kentucky's ready to go. We've got a lot of sites that we know are out there. And so I think once we can get this, this funding in, into the state, that things will start happening pretty quickly, I hope. Yeah, I wonder, do you think that, um, will we need some kind of, uh, uh, education or training programs to get, get folks um, to the point where they can maybe contract for this work? Is that what it might look like? Yeah, I think that's a, that is also a very good question. And one that we are thinking about, I think because there have, there will all of a sudden be a lot more projects for contractors to bid on uh, when it comes to these sites. Um, because typically the way the process works for folks that aren't familiar with it is that you know, the state finds the, uh, puts together a package of, of work that needs to be done and contractors bid on it. And I think that they're, because the funding has, for the program has been declining over recent years, maybe some contractors have kind of moved away from, from relying on or doing those projects as a large part of the portfolio of the work that they do. And so I think that perhaps in the, you know, the, the first phase of the program, the first year, maybe we'll have enough capacity to, um, you know, workforce capacity within the state to be able to address some of these program, programs, but it's just going to build, right? The projects are going to stack up on top of one another. And so we are going to need to have um, more folks who are ready to take on these jobs. And the good news is that a lot of people already have the skills that are needed within our region to be able to do the work, um, you know, especially for people who used to work in the coal industry, you know, it requires landscapers, machine operators, truck drivers, um, you know, bulldozer operators, all of those kinds of folks who um, have, have skills like that are needed to clean up abandoned mine lands. And so I think there, there will be, um, we've got the skills, we just need to connect the dots to, to get folks um, organized to be able to take on these contracts. So I'm hopeful that this will be a job creator and an economic stimulus. We, you know, there are some projections out there that think that this funding could create as many as a thousand jobs over the next 15 years for Kentucky, uh, which is also very exciting. Yeah, yeah. And there've been, you know, we've had a lot of job training or thoughts about different kinds of um, jobs in the region, but so often they, they didn't match up with the skills that people already have. So this is, is uh, doubly exciting for that very reason. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And there is some, there is a, 
we know that this funding will be available for at least 15 more years, right? So there is also some that uh, it will be coming into Kentucky for, for 15 to, to 20 more years. And, and that in and of itself is, it's just nice to have some, some certainty there, both for the program, the abandoned mine land program, and, and the, for the ability for the state agency to invest in their capacity to be able to take on all of these projects, as well as for folks in the region to have some security in terms of the demand for this kind of work and being able to feel confident that if they do acquire the skills, uh, if they don't already have them to, to do this, these construction jobs, these, these site jobs, that there will be a demand for those skills for, for the coming years. Now, I, I know that um, you and Appalachians Law Center, lots of organizations have been involved in um, the Reclaim Act and really calling for this, some of this money to be used to um, develop different kinds of economic development sites. Now, is, did any of that end up in that in this bill? Can we expect any of that? Mm -hmm. that, that language did not end up in this bill. Um, the, the, the funding for abandoned mine land cleanup in this bill is really prioritizes a couple of different things. It, it prioritizes cleaning up these sites without there needing to be, uh, and without the cleanup needing to be integrated with an economic or community development purpose. Uh, and it also has a, um, the, the funding can be used for waterline, for the waterline replacement program, which I think is also really important for folks to be aware of if their source of water, uh, their, their wells or, or other private source of water was impacted by, um, by mining, uh, they can call. <laughs> they can call now, and there's some funds for uh, potentially for some water line replacement to to help make sure folks are connected. However, I will say that that nexus is not explicit explicit within this bill in terms of connecting site cleanup with you know site reuse and development. However, I think that it will emerge from this work because there will be there is so much funding now for cleanup, there may be funds available that are not for just the emergencies, right? And the, the sites that are um, falling off into someone's home. And thus we can look and see, well, among the sites, the, the abandoned mine land sites that we have in our region, you know, which one of those, which ones of those could we dedicate to another purpose? And it, so I, I think that this could be, this funding could act as, um, you know, it, the fact that there, those sites weren't cleaned up or stabilized before may have been inhibiting development or repurposing. And so now that there are funds to do that work, it's a, it could be, you know, a lead in to others looking at those sites and for, for that kind of secondary type of, of development. And, you know, a lot of the time with Reclaim, we were really excited about both the kind of end use repurposing of a site, but also just the job creation itself and the stimulus that um, a billion extra dollars could bring to the US. And now this is over 11 billion. And so I think generally it's just a huge, a huge amount more of uh, more money. And um, we're excited to see all the ways that uh, those kinds of, of benefits are generated from it. Well, that's great. And, and um, 
we are lucky that so many folks around the, around the whole country really pushed for this for for quite a few years. So it, I know it's a real grassroots effort to um, raise the importance of, of fully funding this program. And I appreciate all the work that you and others have done on this. Yes, well, thank you. And as you know, like you said, it's been a, a huge, huge team team effort from from a lot of different folks for, for many years. So it is really exciting to finally move on to the next step. Um, just one thing about the um, Abandoned Mine Land program is I think people would want to know that it, it doesn't cover current um, problems with mining as I understand it. Is, is that in fact true? Yeah, that is true. Um, you know, there's with these are only mine lands that were abandoned before 1977 when there were no reclamation obligations for the coal producers. After the passage of um, the Service Mining Control and Reclamation Act in 1977, mining operators were supposed to be held responsible for, for reclaiming the land and maintaining the sites that they were actively mining. Um, and, and, con and contemporaneously reclaiming. So as they mine, they also reclaim the site. And I know within the region, there are a lot of issues now with some of the sites that are still permitted uh, because they, because of bankruptcies in the region and some of those sites, the permitted sites being kind of in limbo between their previous operator and actually haven't yet transferred to, to a new company. Um, and so sometimes there are maintenance issues on those sites or sometimes a company will um, put a permit in what they call temporary cessation where they're, you know, are not actively mining coal um, because they're, there's this provision in the law that was was conscious of the fact that some coal markets go up and down and sometimes you know operators may need to back off and then you know re-enter into mining but unfortunately but we haven't seen the uptick in the market that would actually be needed to bring some of these sites back into production and so they've just been lying vacant for or you know they're quote active, but there's not really activity taken, taking place on them. And, and sometimes those sites then are, are not being reclaimed when they could be, which would create more jobs uh, to, to be reclaiming those sites. Um, and also can just create some issues for those who are, who are living near them. And so that's still a problem that, you know, we're thinking a lot about and, you know, really concerned about and, and certainly don't want those sites to become you know, even more hazardous. Uh, so it's it's kind of the next the next problem. Um, we've been working on these old, older mines for a really long time. We've hopefully made some progress there, and and now we can um, you know continue to to turn more attention to making sure that um, sure that's what what should be happening on these active sites is is happening as it should be. Well, thank you, Rebecca. Is there anything you would like to add? I don't think so. I mean, I think that it's it's just it's it's an exciting time. So hopefully, this this funding gets to to where it needs to go. And you know, if anybody has um, 
any questions about uh, about these these funding sources or or who they need to call if they have an abandoned mine land site on their property or think that they might um, you know Appalachian Citizens Law Center is, is certainly a resource and um, can always help help point you in the right direction if you're wondering how these funds will actually impact you or take care of the place on your property that you know is a problem. So um, yeah, but just really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about this. Well, thank you, you and all your partners for this work. It's, it's, uh, I think it's really going to pay off in our region in so many ways. I think so too. Another concern for many coal mining families is the status of the excise fee supporting the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund which is set to expire at the end of December. I asked Rebecca if continuing that fee was included in the infrastructure bill. Yeah, so the black lung, um, black lung related policies are actually in the Build Back Better Act. Um, oh, okay. So, yes, so they are, but all, you know, all of those pieces have been swirling <laughs> in and out and among each other. So, uh, but that one has landed in the Build Back Better Act. Um, and what we have, within that bill, the, the act actually passed the house uh, several weeks ago. And within that bill, there was a four-year extension of the black lung excise tax, which is a tax that is the only source of revenue for the black lung disability trust fund. And we actually, just this week, the Senate released their version of um, draft version of the bill. And we have that four-year extension within the Senate version as well, which is really exciting. And this, in this provision, this tax has been renewed on a one-year basis for the last three years, even though previously it would be extended for up to 10 years time. Uh, so having, again, some certainty around you know, retaining that revenue source for the next four years is a, a really a relief because the, the fund, the trust fund, pays out minor benefits and uh, for those that have black lung disease and the fund is already in debt. It's not in a, and financially it's not in a good situation. And we know we have, um, you know, a lot of miners still in our region that need to have those benefits. And so at least this is a first step towards ensuring that there is continued funding available for those. Yes, and sadly, Black lung disease has not gone away as you know we all hoped it would with better dust regulation and those kinds of things. So I'm glad that Congress has recognized that this is still an issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I hope that really this four-year extension gives us the space to think about how do we how do we really make sure that these benefits are there as long as they need to be there because you know, we do, as you said, there's been an increase over the last few years and in, in the rate of, you know, how many, how many miners coming out of the mines today actually have black lung disease and, and oftentimes they are even sicker than their grandfathers were who had the disease um, and younger. And so we need to make sure that we're caring for them and, and for their families for many years to come. I know that these, these benefits, which is include a sort of a relatively small cash benefit, but also um, healthcare, that of course it's, it's life-saving or life-prolonging for those with black lung disease. But I imagine there's 
another impact in our economy as well from continuing this program. That's true. I, I have never seen anything quantified, but you know, it is like you said, the health, the health insurance is very good. Um, it, they don't, minors do not have to pay for any of the care related to their disease once they receive their, their benefits, which is huge, you know, um, to, and to be able to have that confidence when you're having an issue and then actually go get the care that you need because you have that health insurance rather than worrying about what your copay might be or, you know, what that, what your bill is going to be at the end of the day. Um, it, it really does help minors take advantage of, of healthcare when they need it. And as you said, you know, there has been an emphasis on developing healthcare services within our region as a part of, um, you know, making our economy more robust, diversifying the economy here as well. And so it's all, it's all really is integrated. And I think that as we think about our um, economy and, and our people, it's, it's good to be able to provide the services that people actually need within the region and also equip them to be able to access those services. And so, yeah, I think that's a really important, um, important perspective to have. That was Rebecca Shelton from Appalachian Citizens Law Center in Whitesburg. The Build Back Better bill that includes the Black Lung Excise Tax Extension is seen as a companion to the Infrastructure Act and would invest in human infrastructure, those things necessary to building healthy and sustainable communities that can take advantage of the investment in physical infrastructure that's coming. This bill is still being finalized in Congress. Dustin Pugel from the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy described what it could mean for us. I really think that the bipartisan infrastructure plan uh, it provides a lot of really great opportunity, but I think its potential is really unlocked by the Build Back Better plan. So um, the Build Back Better plan is what some people may have heard of as like uh, by a dollar amount lately uh, that Congress is debating uh, whether that's three and a half trillion or 1.7 trillion or whatever, the bottom line is that it is a really large uh, opportunity for a transformation in, in what I would think of as like our human infrastructure. So if, uh, if the bipartisan infrastructure plan was a lot about our physical infrastructure, um, then the Build Back Better plan has to do with making sure our care economy, our education economy, you know, all the things that really invest in human potential are, are actually adequately funded for maybe the first time in, in many ways. So, um, you know, one immediate uh, way in which this would be helpful to families across the state is through a continuation of the child tax credit. So, um, you know, I've got two kids, I've got a six-year-old and a two-year-old. And so for every month since July, I've been receiving a direct deposit to help with just the normal expenses of raising kids. Um, and in my case, that's uh, you know paying for childcare, which is essentially a second mortgage. But you know it, it's all kinds of things, and we know that these sort of direct cash payments um, are not unusual in developed countries. In fact, I think the United States and Turkey are the only two wealthy nations that don't provide that on the on a regular basis. Um, so continuing that would mean that um, those payments don't stop. Uh, today, actually, I think today was the last <laughs> uh, uh, federally authorized deposit uh, for the child tax credit, but we'll continue into next year. Um, but beyond that, 
uh, I think it also provides a historic investment in childcare and preschool. So uh, if Build Back Better passes, 85% of families with young kids would benefit from uh, this childcare entitlement that, that's supposed to start in a few years. Um, and about a third of families with young children wouldn't pay anything. Uh, the rest would pay 7% of their income. But it also not just better for families, it invests directly in childcare centers so that uh, the workforce can be paid adequately so that we can make improvements to centers so that they're providing higher quality care. Um, even though childcare workers are, are really helping care of and, and work with kids at the most critical stage of development, they're among the two lowest paid occupations uh, in, in, the, in the state. And so um, this would help make sure that they're paid closer to what maybe like a preschool teacher is being paid um, because I, there already is a lot of turnover within childcare centers. Speaking of preschool, they would also provide funding for a universal preschool program for three and four year olds that would either be connected to a Head Start program or a public school district or a childcare center. And it would provide funding to make sure that childcare centers and preschool programs can work together to, to provide as close to a full day setting as possible. And there's no income cap on the, on the preschool side of things. Um, it would provide paid leave. Um, I think right now the, the latest version of the bill, which has done a lot of changing lately, provides four weeks. Um, it helps the community and four-year college affordable by increasing Pell Grants and making that available to um, DACA recipients, streamers. Um, you know, it, it actually improves uh, healthcare by making some of the recent improvements to the marketplace permanent, um, which has lower cost for insurance for so many Americans. Um, it also puts, makes a huge investment in housing, not only in building more housing in both rural and urban areas, but also in expanding housing choice vouchers. Um, it, does, it does a whole lot of things. It, Speaking of you know, taking care of uh, or investing in human potential, it also makes a huge boost in home and community-based services so that uh, disabled and, and older folks can still remain in their community, in their homes, but get the care they need while also making sure that the folks taking care of them are paid well and, and taken care of. So um, it is a really large, potentially transformational set of programs um, and it pays for all of that by asking wealthy individuals and wealthy corporations to pay their fair share. Um, so I think it is, uh, you know, it, it has been scaled down a lot over the last several months, uh, but it's still in a position to really uh, help make sure that families uh, can thrive, to make sure that communities do well, to unlock the potential of the bipartisan infrastructure plan and set us on a trajectory for uh, a really robust recovery and a bright, you know, hopefully a bright future. And I, I know that a lot of your work involves um, researching these, these different human capital programs. And, and where does Kentucky stand in terms of, you know, our, our need for this kind of investment? Yeah, so, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll point to um, preschool in particular. Kentucky is one of the, the last states not to provide a uh, universal um, preschool program. We, we, we were among the last states not to provide uh, universal pre, uh, sorry, kindergarten up until last year. And hopefully this year that's made um, permanent. But 
you know, we there's a there's a huge need for for kids to be able to um, get a really high quality education early on um, in in a time in their life when we know there's so much brain development happening and when it's so critical to make sure that um, good quality education is taking place. So just having universal preschool by itself would be a game changer, not only immediately for those kids and for those families, but also we know that uh, high quality early childcare and education has benefits all the way into adulthood. Uh, there are studies from the, the 70s that have followed people all the way through you know, 40 years old and found that folks who have high quality early childcare and education um, are more likely to have a better family life, to earn more, to have higher educational attainment, and even have better health outcomes. So um, in Kentucky, where that is not a guarantee, where, where it's only available to very low-income children or children with disabilities, there's a whole swath of the state who's, who's left out, and that has affected us uh, this whole time. And so uh, I think Kentucky is really in an opportunity to, to benefit from that. And also say that, you know, with the child tax credit, uh, a very high share of children in our state compared to other states have been receiving that, that benefit because we're a poor state. Uh, and, um, you know, we also know that uh, parents are in some of the highest expense years of their lives, the lowest earning years. So this benefit, especially for, for very young children, has been incredibly helpful for them to be able to, to make ends meet. We, we did a story collector a while ago asking folks what this has meant for them. And, and the stories were incredible, just talking about how, you know, they, they didn't have to worry about food anymore. They were able to buy new clothes for their kids. They were able to, um, you know, get to a, a job without worrying about whether or not to pay for gas or medicine. Um, and they were able to afford childcare costs. So it has been really helpful. And I think moving forward, uh, Kentucky stands to benefit greatly from, from that program and some of these others. Yeah, I've heard it said the program could really eliminate child poverty almost completely if it continues. Yeah, I, I mean, it cut child poverty in Kentucky uh, by 49%, uh, just overnight, uh, which is really incredible. And, and we, all, we already know what, um, uh, how many problems childhood poverty can cause uh, immediately, but also uh, throughout life. So sort of taking that worry off of parents and taking that burden off of children um, is going to have a huge benefit, not only for them, but for the rest of society. I know there's a lot of talk now about inflation and this, all of this is inflationary. What, what is your and, and Kentucky policies um, analysis or take on that? I'm really uh, receptive to the frustration around inflation because it really does hurt folks who are sort of living at the, at the bottom the most. Uh, if, if gas goes up, if milk goes up, if housing costs or energy costs go up, um, folks who don't have a lot are gonna feel that the most and they're gonna be squeezed um, the greatest. Um, there is not good reason to think that Build Back Better in particular would increase inflation um, for, for a whole host of reasons. Um, one of them being that uh, a lot of the inflationary effects from federal legislation are going to wane as stimulus checks are spent, um, as some of the extra federal spending to states uh, starts to, to wind down. 
um, and, and as other aspects of emergency relief from CARES to the federal, I'm sorry, the December um, federal emergency bill to ARPA um, are, are going away. Build Back Better doesn't add a whole lot to that. Um, it maintains the child tax credit in terms of like a direct transfer, but otherwise it just reduces, it reduces costs. Um, and so uh, even, even though, um, you know, prices have gone up a little bit for certain things, if you're uh, not paying for childcare if or if you're uh, capped at how much you have to pay for childcare, that's gonna make sure that you're able to afford the other things. I'll also say that the Federal Reserve uh, and other economists have said for a long time now that they believe that this is a temporary bump um, that has been triggered by supply shortages, which is usually which is you can point to very directly as relating to the fact that we had a uh, enormous shock to our our supply chain in 2020, and it takes time to get back up and running. Uh, and so as we do that, as we get our, our ports um, running more smoothly, as uh, you know, we're able to source materials for production, um, a lot of those inflationary pressures will, will start to come down. And um, I think there's good reason to, to trust that and that we um, are not gonna have to uh, you know, see 6% inflation in the coming years, that, that this is, um, uh, transitory situation, and that Build Back Better will help by making sure that folks can afford things without contributing to further inflationary pressures. If what we're trying to do is make sure that folks can afford to, to get the things they need to get by on, um, which are the same things that other people are building and selling, um, then to cut that demand would actually be kind of shooting yourself in the foot. I think that Build Back Better is a really incredible opportunity for the country and, uh, and for a lot of Kentucky families. I think uh, one thing I, I don't think I mentioned is that the child tax credit is, I think it's like 92% of families with children in, in the state, uh, which is almost a million kids. Uh, you know, it, it really is transformational and has been immensely beneficial to families. And this year, a really, uh, it would be a, huge misstep for the Senate to cut that or, or to reduce the number of families who can receive it or um, push misguided notions around work requirements for um, families who are just trying to get by. Um, so I think that coupled with the child care entitlement program that has been um, proposed would be uh, hugely helpful for Kentucky's kids, which means it would be hugely helpful for Kentucky's future. So if, if people want to learn more about this bill or want to take some kind of action, do you have any recommendation of what they could do? Well, uh, you know, on our website, we, we keep up with it. We provide analyses um, on, on new versions of the bill. Um, once the Senate decides what is going to be in it, I'm sure we'll do another one. Um, but in the meantime, you know, I think it doesn't hurt for our public officials to hear from folks uh, and just know so that folks can tell them like, this is what um, being able to actually afford good childcare would mean. Um, to be able to talk about how uh, getting a, a housing voucher could, could bring stability to their family, uh, to talk about how beneficial the child tax credit has been to them and, and their children. Um, I think our, our um, elected officials are often 
uh, stuck in the weeds and, and really start thinking about policy and they forget how important uh, these, these programs are to folks in their lived experience um, and how difficult it is just to get by sometimes. So, um, you know, I think it, it never hurts to reach out to uh, our senators at the moment and let them know um, uh, what, what these programs could do for them. You are hearing from Dustin Pugel from the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy about the potential of the Build Back Better bill now being debated in the U.S. Senate. You can find information about the impact of all kinds of policies affecting Kentuckians online at kypolicy.org. If you want to contact your elected officials, you can reach them by email or call 202 224-3121. A switchboard operator will connect you directly with the Senate or House member you request. Thank you for listening to Making Connections News. All of our stories about opportunities and challenges for diversifying Appalachia's economy and renewing our communities are available on our website, makingconnectionsnews.org, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. From WMMT Mountain Community Radio, happy holidays. Thank you.